Okay, let's go. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. We are joined today by Thomas Williams, a co-founder and the CEO at Number 8 Bio. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How are you doing, by the way? I'm great, thanks, Michael, and thanks heaps for having me. It is my pleasure. Can I ask you this first? What is the significance of Number 8? The bio part I get, but what's the Number 8 part? Yeah, that's a great question. So I grew up in New Zealand. You might be able to tell from my accent. And in New Zealand, farmers have what's called the number eight wire mentality, where they can actually fix anything on the farm using a piece of number eight fencing wire, which is particularly bendy and malleable and versatile. So that's really, I guess, ingrained in the psyche of Kiwis like me. And that's the mentality that we like to think we have at Number 8 Bio when it comes to solving agricultural problems using synthetic biology. I love it. I'm so glad I asked that. Do you? Does your family come from a farming background? No, I was what's called a townie, but I was in a small town in a large uh, dairy region called the Waikato. And yeah, a lot of my, my friends and rugby teammates were dairy farmers. So, What in New Zealand, what exactly is a townie? Because I grew up in a bunch of small towns too, and we called ourselves townies as well. So I'm curious like what that means in New Zealand. Yeah, I reckon it's very specific to a small town that has a lot of farmland surrounding it. it. And it's the, the kids that uh, are not farmers, but they're in that small town. So that was me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess for us, it was like the kids that weren't part of the main thing. They were just the townies, like the kids over there that like maybe weren't part of the main thing that was happening. And I guess in your case, it was farming. Can we talk about yeah. this too? Can we talk a little bit about the history of farming, right? Because I think it's actually super important. And maybe you go back, I don't know, 10,000, 12,000 years. I don't know where it starts. I'm sure you do. But can we do that first? Because then I think it puts everything else into context, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So in my mind, agriculture is actually the foundation of all civilization and underpins everything that we do. And the reason for that is that prior to about 10,000 years ago, humans were largely hunter gatherers. Uh, they didn't settle in places permanently. And, and that's largely because the, the seasons changed and the food moved. So that we underwent, underwent this massive transition around 10,000 years ago, where we stopped roaming because we could start to grow crops and animals and in single locations basically and what that did for civilization is allowed us to have a surplus of food which meant that not everyone in the community had to spend all of their time getting food which opens up specialist roles so that you know zoom forward ten thousand years we can have podcast hosts and co-founders and scientists because we don't have to physically feed ourselves every day and that's all thanks to agriculture i think i'm definitely at the bottom of that part of the food chain <laughs> but I, I i don't want to pass over this idea of it being the foundation of civilization because i actually think this is really important because when you're nomadic and you're running around and you're pre-neolithic right you don't have time for spirituality you don't have time for family structure you don't have time for culture all you're trying to do is survive. So once agriculture becomes a thing and people actually figure out how to produce food, they understand seasonality and planting and also cattle raising and animal raising. We'll talk about that later. Now you have to organize in a different way. So it changed the structure of everything. And I just want to be clear about this. You're not just talking about the way people ate, but just the way they really lived. Is, is that fair? Yeah, it is in some ways, but I, I don't want to be disrespectful to those cultures that um, have remained hunted, you know, hunter gatherers yeah, yeah, yeah. until now at all. Like they still have, you know, rich and complex lives. But if we're talking about the, I guess, what I would call the grand ambitions of civilization, which is to keep this ball rolling for as long as possible, have quality of life, and you know, eventually expand beyond this earth as well, then agriculture is critical to that. 
Yeah, that was very actually um, pedestrian of me because I was talking about it in the context of Western culture. You were right and I was wrong. And I'm, and thank you very much for pointing that out because it is important. And those civilizations have advanced drastically across the board. So thank you very much for talking about that. Can we talk about what modern agri agriculture is itself and how it's changed over time as well? Yeah, absolutely. It and human progress are quite closely coupled. And so so is agriculture and our population level. Obviously, there's been huge change throughout history, but the period of time that I like to zoom into in the context of this is post-World War II. Oh, you know, okay. we had a population of, I forget what it was, two to three billion, something like that. Yeah. And there were all these Malthusian prophecies of population collapse. We're going to run out, run out of food. Two billion people are going to starve. And they, at the time, those predictions were accurate based on current technology. Really? And the reason, the reason that that didn't pan out is basically because of two very simple things, synthetic fertilizer and crop breeding. So we started using nitrogen fertilizer and bred better varieties of crops that grow more efficiently with fewer resources and with higher yields. And 2 billion people didn't starve because of that. So that's a really profound leap. It's called the, the Green Agricultural Revolution. What was the what was the role that mechanized farming and farming consolidation moving, at least in the Western world, from smallholder farming to almost corporate farming as well, right? Because technology had to have some impact on that too, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other the other piece of that technological puzzle is mechanization and automation. You know, without these these big sophisticated tractors that harvest crops and you know modify the soil there would be no way just no way that we could economically feed the, the population that we currently have and i feel like and again I, I mean i've already made like 17 mistakes in the first like three minutes of this conversation and keep pointing them out because that's why we're here but i feel like a lot of the a lot of the innovation that we've seen in the farming world i'm not going to say up until today but let's say in the previous like 35 or 45 or 50 years has been around mechanization, putting technology into all this equipment, making the crops better, the fertilizers better. Um, and also, I can't remember the name of this, thing, but the thing that protects the crops as well, but also adding GPS and just taking the farm equipment there and just mm. making it like IoT connected and all that stuff. Yep. Right? Is that is that true too? Because now I feel like we're reaching a flipping point or, or a tipping point where all that innovation's happened and now people are realizing, oh, okay, well, now there's a negative side to that too. And maybe you can explain some of that as well. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, farming trends with the rest of the big advances that go on in, in, in society in terms of big data and AI and all that sort of thing. So that's absolutely happening, but we still need more productivity. We've, you know, in some ways we've maxed out what we can do with certain classes of technology like chemical fertilizers and uh, to an extent mechanization so a large part of what we're doing which i think we'll get to later is is unlocking that next leap in productivity and sustainability but the sustainability angle is really really important because although agriculture is the foundation of civilization and underpins everything that we're doing it's not perfect just like everything humans do it's not perfect and it has some negative consequences right so animal agriculture alone is accounting for something like 15% of climate change agriculture as a whole is something like a quarter to a third of all climate change and this has profound consequences and that it means we're using a very large amount of earth's habitable land uh, to make crops for example that animals eat and to do that we have to we have to use areas of earth that potentially should be forest can i get a better understanding of this i did a recording it's got to be almost a year ago now with a venture capitalist in singapore and they are starting to invest that they want to build 100 companies with 100 million dollars of value that are in the esg space right 
It's called Wavemaker Impact. And he was one of the first people who explained to me that the farming of rice and the farming of crops has a big impact on the environment and on sustainability. But can I understand why? Like, is it just the machines that are doing it? Or like, what is the real reason for that impact? I really want to know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the principal reason is actually fertilizer. So we had this giant leap post-World War II with fertilizer use that expanded productivity in the population. But now that that causes a really a really incredible problem of greenhouse gas runoff. So the nitrogen that we use as fertilizer for crops, only about half of it actually goes into the plant. The other half goes into the waterways and the groundwater and gets converted into a greenhouse gas called nitrous oxide that's actually 265 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So something like 5% of Earth's climate change comes from fertilizer runoff and Earth spends 1% of all electricity making synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. 1% of all the energy? Yep. Doing a single chemical reaction called the Harbour-Bosch. It's incredible. I, I want to ask a really another really uninformed question, but why do we hear all this stuff about carbon decarbonization, carbon credits and stuff like that, and we don't hear enough people talking about this nitrous oxide runoff? And Because people know what nitrous oxide is. It's not even hard to pronounce. Do you know what I mean? Why do we never hear about this if it's such a big problem? Yeah, I honestly don't know. Um, I reckon every carbon trading framework and every government policy should actually have a CO2 equivalent for nitrogen and for nitrogen, nitrous oxide. I think some of them probably do already, but to my understanding, most of them actually don't. It's one of the critical pieces of this whole puzzle. Well, then I'm super glad. If, if I learn nothing else on this on this recording, that's got to be one of the most important things, particularly if 1% of the Earth's energy is spent on producing this stuff and then it just runs off. And what percent did you say actually goes into the crop? It's like half, <laughs> roughly, D depending on the crop and how you use it. You know, there's all these variables. But... Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So talk to me now about the synthetic bio part of this thing. And then maybe this is a good time for you to tell me about your background so I can see where you fit into the SynBio ecosystem. So as we've covered, I grew up in this little farming town, uh, well aware of the problems of ag agriculture, but also the importance. Um, yeah, I started my career as an undergrad studying biochemistry, genetics, microbiology in New Zealand. But somewhere along that journey, I got really, really excited about synthetic biology. And I actually remember a critical moment in my life where I read a scientific article and never never before and never since have I had such a, a heart-pounding, profound realization in a single moment. And it was really? a paper written by a famous scientist called Craig Venter, who had chemically synthesized and assembled the world's first synthetic genome. So every gene, every base pair of DNA was designed and constructed in a lab and brought to life. And to me, that told me that Genetic engineering is no longer a boring grandpa science where one gene is altered at a time. We now have, in my naive mind at the time, complete control of biology, and we can really harness this to do important things in the world. I spent the last 10 years realizing that that's not quite the case, and we don't understand it well enough to you know, design <laughs> genomes and have them work. But anyway, since that moment, I went and did a PhD, University of Queensland. Then I became a postdoc here in Sydney and eventually an academic group leader. Right. Uh, reasonably well-funded lab and a large team. Uh, but more recently, of course, I founded Number 8 Bio and have left that behind to be the CEO. You gave me a chill. That's I was holding up my arm, not to like make some kind of display, but I was holding up my arm because I got a chill when you talked about this, the DNA sequencing and your idea after you read that article. And I want to have a link to that as well in the show notes so that other people can read it too. 
Oh, yeah, I can help you with that. It's super weird when you have these, I hate the word epiphany, but when you have these sort of epiphany style moments, right? I remember I was reading an article, this has to be 25 or 30 years ago, and scientists had created something that completely mimicked the use of the human eye. And I remember just reading it, I was sitting at my desk on the trading desk at Morgan Stanley, and I just thought, okay, if we can make an eye, then we got to be able to make everything else. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I feel like the universe is being deconstructed bit by bit. And again, tell me where you think I'm wrong here. You're way more scientific than I am, but I feel like in my sights, I see all these little thing changings, all these little things changing bit by bit. And scientists are bit by bit understanding and breaking down and fragmenting everything and disassembling it and saying, well, now that we know how it works, and now the technology is moving really quickly, and we have access to all this data, we should be able to reconstruct almost everything that we have. And to me, it's like an existential thing, more than a scientific thing. We can talk about that later, but I just love the way it's just everything's being disambiguated. Talk to me about how this works in the agricultural space, right? So you went and did a PhD, you did postdoc. I almost want to know like what you learned there that now you're applying to number eight bio. Yeah. Yeah, I learned some inter interesting lessons. The chief one being that life is a little bit harder to engineer than I initially thought as a naive undergrad reading that paper. Um, but, but, but you know, but isn't that sorry to interrupt you? But isn't that a good thing to learn though? Right? In other words, you read the paper and you get super excited. You're like, okay, I'm dedicating my life to this thing, and then you go and study and learn. I think people misunderstand. I'm sorry, you can feel my excitement. I I, I think people misunderstand like what a PhD is, right? And again, my understanding from the people that I know that have gone through it, it's like a three, four, it could take five or more years, but it's like studying something that like everybody doesn't understand where you really want to dig as deeply as you possibly can and come up with something new. It's like taking classes on stuff at just a higher level. It's a different level of research and understanding. But if that, reading that article inspired you to do that, even if your original idea wasn't, I'm going to say right in quotes, it was still worth it because it inspired you to go and do that. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I had a blast. I, I worked with some of the most incredible people and incredible minds you'll ever meet. I did engineer life to do profoundly new things, which I get an absolute kick out of. Not so much anymore, but at least in the early days. Um, and I've, I've made useful knowledge, made useful things, and I'm now transitioning that knowledge out of academia and into the the quote unquote real world. Yeah. So how does that work? Because that was the original part of this question. Like, How do you take all that stuff that you learned and apply it to the things you want to accomplish? Yeah. Well, at the heart of this is the fact that for us, agriculture is inherently a biological process and a biological system. And like I was saying before, we have somewhat maxed out the advances that we can get through other uh, interventions. So there's a massive, massive opportunity here to apply the toolkit of synthetic biology to re-engineer life, to customize it, to scale it, to improve it with you know, the thousand-fold increases that you can get from taking an engineering biology approach. So that that's chiefly why I'm applying my skills um, in the commercial context of agriculture. Can you pick an example for people so that they can get a better understanding about what that means? You said re-engineering and a couple of other things. Can you just give an example? Like, is it just making a better banana? And I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, right, just to make the point, but can you give us an example of something that you're working on that you think is going to be transformational so people can understand and walk through the process of how you do that? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So the, our company, Number 8 Bio, actually started um, based off a, a single insight, and that was that there's this incredible species of seaweed called Asparagopsis taxiformis, which when included in the diet of cattle, 
almost completely eliminates their methane emissions, which, by the way, cause between 6 and 10% of all climate change and decrease the animal's productivity. And seaweed does that through making an incredible cocktail of different active molecules. So great, great effect. But the problem with seaweed is that it's very challenging to scale up. It's slow growing. You can't engineer it. It grows in seawater. It's photosynthetic. All these like really physical inherent limitations. Right. So a lot of what synthetic biologists like me actually do is we look at something like that that's kind of off the shelf in nature. And we think, how can we make this scalable and deliverable in a format that society will more readily accept so what we've been doing is taking uh, genes from seaweed and enzymes from seaweed re-engineering them in yeast which can grow at multi-million liter scale all around the world you can make tons of this stuff in a couple of days it's already fed to cattle it's already approved by the regulators so we've just taken a non-scalable system and we're scaling it up in something that uh, that really works and customizing it and making it work better at the same time I'm just blown away. And again, I've I've always had this thought, right, that on Earth somehow, or maybe in the universe somehow, but at least close to us on Earth somehow, all the materials for the things that we need and want to survive and thrive are already here. It's just up to us to find it and to find ways to put it all together, if that makes sense. Yeah, I see it that way as well. I see almost the purpose of life is uh trying to understand the big this big picture of the universe and to apply it to uh keep the ball rolling yeah you you also mentioned fermentation can you talk about why that matters as well because before i before i started doing some research for this i never considered fermentation as the thing like because when i think about fermenting things i think about you know whiskey and gin and stuff like that Mm. i don't Mm. think about synthetic biology where does that fit in as well yeah so fermentation is the means of production for most of synthetic biology and how that works is if you imagine a beer yeast you know growing on the the sugars released from barley and producing alcohol right what we do is we engineer the metabolism of a microbe like yeast to not make ethanol but to make some other valuable product whether it be seaweed molecules or a pharmaceutical or a new type of food or a material or a biofuel yeah it's endless the possibilities there do you remember the feeling that you and the team had when you realized you could take the benefits of seaweed, which is hard to scale for all the reasons that you mentioned, and then re-engineer them and then actually finally do it and figure out? Because re-engineering it is one thing, right? But then producing it at scale is another thing. We've been mm-hmm. we've been talking about this in the sort of quantum physics and quantum chip making space for years, right? But so far, we're almost there. People haven't figured out how to do this at scale. But what is that feeling like when you realize, okay, we have this idea, we found this thing, we can manufacture it, but now we can do it at scale. So now we can take away this, what did you say, six to 8% of all- All climate change. All climate change is a result of this. What is that feeling like, seriously? Yeah, well, uh, we it remains for us to execute on this impact, like we are in the R and D lab stage. But yeah, we've had some we've had some fun times celebrating this. I think one of the real breakthroughs we had actually came after uh, my co-founder Alex Carpenter and his partner had been over at my place for dinner one night. Yeah, and Alex Alex had a critical experiment running in the lab, so he he and Holly actually went back to the lab at about ten p.m. to check the result. And yeah, I got a text from Alex that night saying, "We've got it." it works <laughs> and they they were apparently dancing by the the complicated <laughs> instrument that does this measurement um so yeah so from there we've been productizing and and trying to scale up basically i think this is the coolest thing about this kind of progress is that and don't take this the wrong way i've said so many wrong things on this call already but it's just like regular people 
Do you know what I mean? Regular guys and gals out there just trying to do the right thing, who wake up every morning, take a shower, have dinner with each other, have friends, watch movies, have a beer. And then while they're also doing all these like killer experiments, trying to make the world a better place. Do you know what I mean? Like you're sitting there having dinner, maybe you're having lamb chops. I don't know. Right. And then in the middle of it, they go, okay, we got to go back because we've got this experiment running and you've just had dinner. Maybe you were talking about your kids or whatever. And they text you and go, we got it. And you just stop. Yeah, it's amazing. It, it's not often you get those those profound moments, but they sure. are worth savoring and cherishing. When people think about startups, right, they think about Uber and, you know, Instagram. <laughs> I don't want to say shit like that, right? But what ha what's happening at Synbio X, I think is what it's called, is some real deep tech research that's really trying to have a real impact on not just like how people's lives are made more convenient, but more sustainable, which is in a way is way more important, I think. Mm. How do you see it fitting into the startup ecosystem? Because I have to presume when you were, when you left New Zealand, when you went to get your PhD, when you started doing all this stuff, you weren't thinking, I'm going to have my own startup company kind of thing. But once you get into that ecosystem, how do you feel like that as a thing can help accelerate this? Yeah, it's been really, really transformational doing research within the context of a startup yeah. compared to doing it within academia. So you're, you're right. My goal initially, you know, at the outset wasn't to make a startup and do anything like this. It was, that wasn't really a thing back then, at least in my psyche. <laughs> it was more to, you know, have a good time, learn something useful and make some useful knowledge for the world. But, you know, eventually as you progress in the system, you learn that it's not necessarily the most efficient uh, or impactful way to do research. And by that, I mean that fundamental research is is underfunded in, in most developed nations. Australia is no exception there. And what that means is that you have small projects that are they have one or two people working on them. They're typically one of them's a trainee, one of them's a bit more experienced. If you're, if you're lucky and you're very good, you win a $500,000 grant every three years and you have two people work on individual projects. So you have these little two-man armies, basically, working on stuff. Whereas in a startup, you can put far more resources into a single driving goal, and you can have the most elite scientists that you know. You can cherry-pick them from wherever you want, compensate them well, and have them all driving towards something that's meaningful and impactful as a proper team. No one's fighting over authorship or you know, grappling for yeah. you know their, their other grand ambitions to win the next grant. It's really, really nice. Is there a natural tension, and how is that tension removed in the program that you were in that then, what's the right word, that then migrated into the startup world? Because if I understand this correctly, right, the Symbio 10X program, you participate in that. Yeah, I want to make sure I, I did, understand. yeah, that's right. But that's yep. also part of UNSW, no? Mm -hmm. So there's a whole thing going on there that doesn't seem to be going on in a lot of other places that seems yeah. super cool, no? Do you know what I mean? Because otherwise, you're right. You would be doing some cool research. You'd have to fight for a grant, and that grant would be 500 grand as opposed to 25 million bucks. And then the resource allocation to those things is so much smaller than it probably should be or could be. But what was this idea to then move it into the startup world so that you could fund things like this? Do you know what I mean? Like, what was that natural tension that exists? And then how does it get better when you move into this kind of environment where the university itself realizes we got some kick-ass stuff going on here. And instead of running it through the normal process, why don't we run it through that process and actually bring it in here? Yeah, I think universities are still uh, undergoing a bit of an awakening to the possibilities of founder-led, scientist-led 
startups. Yeah. The traditional model that they pursue is to license license IP to big corporates, basically. Yep. But because of the pressures to publish that scientists have, what that usually means is that when they bring their technology to the tech transfer office, it's quite immature and it's not actually ready to be commercialized, right. which means that it's very unlikely that a big corporate will actually pay for that and commercialize it. But if you do this within a startup, you get the the passion and the energy of the scientist directed towards making that technology an actual commercial product or service over the time that's necessary to do that. You have it in a, in a commercial vehicle that can bring in the the capital and the resources to do it. So it's a, a fresher model, I think, within Australia. And the Symbiotenics program is really great at unlocking the like the latent potential that exists in uh, Australia's academic scientists. So how far along are you guys? Do you know what I mean? Have you been funded external to the program as well? We have, yeah. So we we officially founded um, in about a year ago, about May 2022. Okay. And we've we've largely been doing um, R and D to date and assembling our team. Yeah, yeah. And when does this thing get commercialized, or when do you think it can get commercialized? We're looking to do our first cattle trials um, early next year, and then commercialize immediately afterwards. Oh my god! So we've we've um we've had great success in the lab so far. That's insane. And when does it? When do you feel like this moves outside of Australia and into the rest of the world? Because this is not a local problem. This is a global mm. problem. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're looking to commercialize in parallel in North America. We've actually already got a U.S.-based subsidiary of our Australian you. parent company. Uh, we're going to go go hard there as well. Cattle in the U.S., uh, both dairy and beef, have very controlled scientific diets. So it's a nice place for us to enter with this additive. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would be surprised if they understood how the how the cattle market worked, right? I mean, they have a very scientific diet. I think most people think they're just out in the field somewhere eating grass, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, a lot definitely are. But even those even those animals often receive um, supplements that uh, increase their health or balance their you know their vitamins and their salts. There's always a way a way to reach them, no matter how how much grass they're eating. I, I always think that the deeper you get into a particular subject the more it changes the way you view the world, right? So you've already talked about this one way when you read this article. I want to get this guy's name right because you, you did say it, uh, Craig. Craig Fenter. Yeah, Craig Fenter, right? Yeah. That it changes the way you think about it. But now that you've gone through this whole process and you've actually created this thing, how how is it not possible for you to look at the rest of the world and think, we can also change that. We can also fix this. You know, there's something we can do over there as well. Do you know what I mean? Where like the vision maybe just gets so much bigger because in your day-to-day life now you see, I didn't think so, but that's also an opportunity. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, that's core to what we do at Number 8 Bio. We've got a, a Swiss army knife in synthetic biology and we can apply it to many different problems, not just uh, enteric methane mitigation. Yeah. There's all sorts of molecules that we can engineer the production of in a microbe that is a sustainable source of nutrition, but also a functional source of nutrition that improves productivity or decreases disease or improves flavor or coloring, all sorts of different things we can do there. I love this. I want to talk a little bit about capital raising as well and just the confidence you get from building something that obviously works. Do you know what I mean? So if you go back to, I like to use Instagram as an example of something we don't really need but somehow everybody's mm. using it, right? So when you go out to fund something like that 10 or 15 years ago, people are like, mm, do we really need filters on photos kind of thing? So you're sitting yep. in a meeting with a guy who really has to believe that you're going to be able to change behavior for people. Do you feel like this, I don't even know how to say this the right way, but like this insane confidence of like, if we need to go out and raise money for this, 
it's always hard, but it should be easier than raising for that thing because the the impact is so much more obvious. You know what I mean? You must go home with confidence yeah. on this, no? Yeah, I think there's a trade-off there actually and that uh, although there's a more uh, like a, a a strong impact, you know, environmental impact that we're we're bringing into the world. There's also greater risk than someone making a, you know, a Snapchat or an Uber or whatever. It, it is like with deep tech, it's a genuine question whether it is even possible to make the technology come to life. Whereas if someone's building an app, you know for a, a absolute certainty that there's no technical challenge there. You you know, right. give the right right number of programmers the right amount of money, they will make it. So that there's greater risk in the eyes of the investor and there is greater risk in reality as well with what we do. Yeah, but there is at the beginning. And again, tell me where I'm wrong here. There is at the beginning, right? And actually, I would say the risk at, at the beginning is kind of the same. Are they going to use the photo app or are they going to use the synthetic bio? We don't know right. you, because the traction is exactly the same. If no one's used mm. it, meaning the, the photo app, and if you, haven't yep. really, if you haven't really created the synthetic biology that you want to, but once you have created it, I'm not saying the risk is completely removed, but it's like we know this works. And now we just have to figure out a way yeah. to do it at scale and get it out into the world. Yeah. Does that make sense yeah. now? Yeah. Yeah. I would add a little bit of nuance to that. Go and ahead. that um, a lot of Symbio products also have the commercial risk. There is actually a question mark over whether it will be uptaken in the market. Um, and, you know, we see that we've seen that play out, I suppose, with plant-based meats to some extent where they weren't quite as as popular as what was initially envisaged yeah. by founders and investors. So no, there, there's definitely still market risk, I think, for, for deep tech. Yeah, for sure. It's just, I'm sorry, these, this side of this conversation is actually really interesting to me, right? Because you're involved in it every single day. Are there other risks out there for this kind of stuff that we don't understand? In other words, is there incumbent opposition to some of this stuff that you're doing, right? So if somebody's literally out there farming seaweed and they don't want you to come in and because you're basically going to take their business away, right? Now, the flip side of this is they could invest in your business and just do less work and make more money and have better impact. But is there incumbent resistance to this as well? Yeah, I mean, the world's a big place and there's always yeah. going to be some farmers that want a certain product because of the story behind it. And I think that'll be the case for seaweed going forward. But yeah, there's all sorts of other risks, right? And in particular, uh, in, in the context of regulations for synthetic biology, it's different in different parts of the world. Like we make we make GMOs and how you, how you have that in your product, uh, it really matters depending on where you are in the world. Yeah. Really interesting. Okay, look, I'm going to let you go unless there's something else that you wanted to cover. But this was so interesting. And hopefully you could hear the interest in my voice and the excitement just being able to have this type of conversation with you. I would say this to you as well. As you make progress, if you want to come back on the show and talk more about stuff that you've learned or that, that have changed or that's developed or things that came up that you didn't anticipate, that would be awesome. Tom Williams, a co-founder and CEO at Number 8 Bio. From beginning to end, this was really, really great. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much for having me.